Well, this summer at Christ Community Church, we are in a series we're calling Both And. We're looking at some of the attributes of God that at first glance don't seem like they should go together, but when you combine them are actually pretty amazing. So to explore this theme, we're going out in the town to look for some surprising combinations. Well, I'm here at Whirly Ball in Lombard, and Whirly Ball is a surprising combination. It's one part bumper cars, and the other part is, well, basketball, lacrosse, wiffle ball, maybe all of the above. Let's head in and check it out. Well, we're here with Amanda at Whirly Ball, and she's going to tell us a little bit about what the sport is and how it came about. So, Amanda, why don't you tell us where the idea of Whirly Ball came from? Sure. So the idea actually came from a father watching his sons play catch on golf carts. Really? So yeah, it was kind of cool. Uh, so he saw them and he was like, oh, this is a really cool idea, but how can we make this you know, a little bit more safe <laughs> than being on you know, a, a cart that has no, no doors? So he ended up coming up with the concept, um, doing some research, thinking, you know, what about bumper cars, which is a great idea. So um, he ended up trying to go play catch on bumper cars, and it didn't work out. There's an electrical ceiling that was super low, and a rod that you know blocks the cars from you know being able to throw the ball. So he ended up teaming with um, a company called Flowtron, and they created uh, what we call a whirly bug, and it's a safer, faster, maneuverable bumper car where you can now, now play whirly ball. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, it sounds pretty cool. So we should go give it a whirl which is a super cheesy joke that I'm sure everybody makes, right? No, it's awesome. Well, let's go try it. Well, we're here with Gary, and he's going to tell us how this whole Whirly Ball thing works. So, Gary, what is the secret to Whirly Ball? Uh, just a few tricks. First thing is about throwing the ball. It's just a flick. If you try to overpower it, it won't go anywhere. So just, just the wrist. Yeah, the just the wrist. Okay. Next one is to pick up the ball. A lot of people try to overhand it. All you got to do is shovel it up, and I'll pop right in. And then uh, while you're driving the car, pretend it's the bottom of the steering wheel. Left goes right, right goes left. Oh, okay, so it makes it easy. Yes. Got it. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun, but I can't play alone, so I brought some friends along. talking about a surprising combination in God today, about how God is both powerful and sacrificial. And to do that, we've got Heather Zempel with us. Heather is the discipleship pastor at National Community Church in Washington, D.C., and she's on the teaching team there. This is going to be great, so when she comes out, give her a warm Christ community welcome. Hey, good morning. Uh, so excited to be with y'all today. I'm coming to the end of a week. I, I spent the earlier part of this week in my hometown of Mobile, Alabama. 
my gran was turning 99 years old. Yeah, and um, it's a family of surprising combinations right now because my gran's 99 and my daughter just turned one. And uh, if you just do me, uh, you know, indulge me for a moment. Can we do the obligatory, like, show the picture? Um, uh, Sawyer Elizabeth, I, I brought a picture to show you. Um, that is my uh, 14-month-old ball of energy, and uh, love her, miss her. But anyway, we're, we're in Mobile as a family celebrating my grand's 99th birthday, and one of the things we do in Mobile is we go to minor league baseball. Uh, now, one of my life goals is to hit every major league baseball stadium. And I'm happy to report today that I've already checked off U.S. Cellular Field. And I've checked off Wrigley Field. <laughs> so, <laughs> but when you're in Mobile, you go to minor league baseball. And I've got to admit that while I was watching the game, I was actually more enthralled in the conversation that was going on behind me than what was actually happening on the field. Because behind me, there were sitting three 10-year-old boys who were excitedly trying to one-up one another, sharing their statistics from their first year of coach pitch baseball. But what really got me uh, interested in the conversation is when their dad asked them if they would like anything from the concession stand, and in the thickest Southern accent I think I've ever heard, they said, Dad, Daddy, we'd really like you to get us some bold peanuts. Does anybody know what a bowl peanut is? All right, if you're not familiar with the Alabama vernacular, a, a bowl peanut is a boiled peanut. Now, I know most of you are still really confused, um, but just uh, believe me when I say if you've never had a peanut that's been boiled or boiled, you're missing out. They're really good. But this conversation took me back to a time when I was four years old, sitting in the third row of the balcony at Cottage Hill Baptist Church. And uh, at that church where I grew up, we had an altar call after every service. It didn't matter if it was the kids' Christmas program. There was going to be an altar call. And in those altar call moments, we sang those old altar call hymns. Just as I am, I have decided, I surrender all. Now, as a four-year-old in Mobile, Alabama, I had a lot of trouble with that song, I Surrender All. Because for the life of me, I could not figure out why God wanted us to give up our all. Because in Alabama, all is something that you drill for in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> or you change in your car every 3,000 miles or three months, whichever comes first. Just like we ball our peanuts, we drill for our all. And it took me a long time to realize that what we were surrendering was our all, A-L-L, not our all, O-I-L. So I was very confused as a kid for a couple of years about what God wanted from me. But I think a lot of us go through life confused about what God wants of us or expects of us. And I think it's largely because we don't really know who he is. And, and I think it's because when we approach this book, we, we largely approach it as a list of rules to live by instead of a calling to live for. Or we think that this book reveals to us primarily who we are and who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do instead of primarily as a revelation of who God is. 
I know last weekend, Pastor Clayton shared with you a quote by A.W. Tozer that what comes to mind when you first think about God is the most important thing about you. I'm so excited to be with you this weekend as, as you continue this both and series on the nature and the character of God. And, and I just want to give a special welcome right now to all of the Christ Church community across all of the campuses at, at uh, Bartlett, at Blackberry Creek, at DeKalb, all of our family that's joining us online today, and all of you right here at the St. Charles campus. My, my prayer for all of us today, regardless of where you are, Regardless of where you are on your faith journey, maybe you're, you're here at church for the very first time ever, or maybe you're coming back after a long time, or maybe you've been here you know, your, your entire life. My, my prayer for you today is that you would encounter a God who is more powerful and yet also more personal than anything you've ever imagined. You see, in this book, we see a, an amazing kaleidoscopic tapestry of God's character. We see those attributes that we love, like he's love and he's goodness and grace and mercy and truth. And then we read other adjectives that describe his character that we're a little bit less comfortable with, like wrath or jealousy or justice. And sometimes we, we feel like there's this tension in his character He's the God of wrath and grace, the God of, of jealousy and love, the God who is a warrior and the God who is a peacemaker, the God who is simultaneously far above all of his creation and yet draws near to each one of us. Last week you talked about the God who is three and also one, that he is truly the God of surprising combinations. But I would argue that they're surprising combinations and not contradictions. One of the things that, that I do um, when, when I read my Bible is anytime I see a name or an adjective that describes God's character, I'll circle it or I'll underline it or highlight it because then when I turn the pages of Scripture, I see the character of God screaming off the page at me. So I just share that as something that maybe you might want to consider doing while you're in this series. He's the both and God. And I think it's important that we understand both sides of his character because there, there's two reasons. For us to, to worship God rightly, we have to understand him rightly. So if we only want to worship a God who is love and grace and goodness and ignore a God who is also one of wrath and jealousy, it means that we're just worshiping a God of our own creation. And the worst possibility is that we worship a God created in our own image. And so it's important first to know God's character in order to worship him rightly. But it's also important that we know God's character because we're called to reflect him to the world around us. We're called to follow him and be on mission with him. And so we need to know what he's really like. We have to know and embrace the both and God in order to live in the world that he's put us in. Because in many ways, we live in a both-and world. We live in a world that is marked with the fingerprints of his design. But it's also a world that is marred by the fracturing of sin. And then we're actually both-and people. We're, we are people who are created in his image. But also people who are corrupted by sin. 
And so we need a both and God to live as both and people in a both and world. And in Philippians 2, Paul gives another picture of God's both and nature. Now, Paul was a guy that thought he had God figured out. And then he met Jesus. And again, he found this God that was more powerful and personal than he could have imagined. And he was writing to a church in the city of Philippi, which was in the ancient country of Macedonia. And Philippi was, was founded as a Roman colony. And so the people that lived there had Roman citizenship, which gave them uh, unique rights and privileges and responsibilities as Roman citizens. But when Paul wrote to them, he said, hey, don't forget, you're a both and people. You have Roman citizenship, which gives you unique rights and responsibilities and privileges. But more importantly, you're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that brings other unique rights and privileges and responsibilities. And as you live as those both and people, remember that Jesus has given us an example to follow. And in Philippians 2 verse 5, he says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying what's absolutely critical that we understand here is that Jesus was fully God. He was fully God, all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven, surrounded by worship, Almighty, most holy God. But then he stuffed all of his godness into a tiny, helpless fetus inside the womb of a Jewish teenager. I mean, can we just pause and think about that for a moment? The, the creator, redeemer, sustainer of the universe would wrap himself in the skin of his own creation, subject himself to the care of his own creation in order to win back the creation that he so desperately loved. Jesus was fully God. And because he was fully God, he's able to represent God fully to us. But he was also fully man. And because he was fully man, he is able to fully represent us to God. It is his power and his sacrificial natures working together in perfect harmony that made him the perfect sacrifice. But Jesus wasn't the first time that we see God's power and sacrifice on display together. We can actually go all the way back to the beginning of the story to see that. See, in the beginning, God created, and at the sound of his voice, galaxies were hurled into orbit. Light beamed from heaven. Water covered the earth. Birds flew in the sky. Fish swam in the sea. Insects crawled on the ground. Dinosaurs thundered across the land. God's very first command, let there be light, put his power on full display. 
Light traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Electromagnetic waves in wavelengths ranging over an order of 16 magnitudes burst into existence. Potential energy and kinetic energy reservoirs deposited around the universe to fuel its existence for billions of years. The process of photosynthesis is ignited to begin the food chain to support life. That first command, let there be light, gave us radio waves and microwaves and fiber optic communication and radiation treatment for cancer. It gave us um, infrared photography and videography and telescopes. His first command was so powerful that it has taken us millennia to discover the full implications of it. In fact, we've, we are recently discovering that the universe is still expanding, which means God's first command was so powerful that it is still creating today. Before I was a, a pastor, I was a biological engineer. I blame the God of surprise and combinations. <laughs> But when I think about that first command of let there be light, God's power goes on full display. And he creates, and it was all good. And it took us three chapters to mess it all up. Adam and Eve came to a point where they had to choose whether or not to trust God's character. And they made a choice that reflected that they didn't trust who he was. And so we read verse after verse of God declaring the consequences of that choice. But it's in the, the declaration of all the consequences and all of the despair and all of the tragedy that we find what I believe to be one of the most poignant verses in all of Scripture. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve to clothe them. In the midst of tragedy and banishment, and despair, and consequences. God steps out of his place of power into their world, grabs one of his perfect, innocent, good creation, and kills it, sacrifices it to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. God's character was revealed in both creation and covering. His creation, his power revealed creation in all of its glory. And his sacrifice covered creation in its shame. The both and God. And then we, we keep reading the story and we come to the second book of the Bible in Exodus. The people of God find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up a man by the name of Moses and says, deliver my people, bring them freedom. And, and Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And so God says, if you don't let them go, I'm going to bring plagues on you. And Pharaoh refuses to let people go. And for the next five chapters, we read the horrific things that happen with the plagues. The, the Nile River turns to blood and, and the sun goes dark and darkness covers the land and the, the livestock are are inflicted with horrendous diseases and it culminates with the firstborn of all Egypt being slain, including Pharaoh's own son and Pharaoh was powerless to stop it. Now I think, we read these chapters and 
in, in all of these plagues seem a little bit senseless and random and inhumane to us. I mean, my, my first thought when I read it is, wow, God, God was really ticked off. But if we look at things more closely, we realize that God wasn't just randomly doing things to reflect how upset he was. If we look at the, the, the religious system of Egypt, the Nile River was considered to be the source of all life. The sun was considered to be a god. Animals were considered to be holy. And Pharaoh himself was believed to be a god. So what God was doing with those plagues was very systematic and intentional to unravel the fabric of the Egyptian religious system to declare that he was the one true God. His power was on display. And yet at the same time, he goes to his people, the Israelites, and says, this is what you need to do. You need to take a lamb and sacrifice it. And take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of your house so that when this last plague comes through, you will be spared and it will pass over you. And for millennia, the people of God have celebrated Passover. God showed his power to the Egyptians. He saved the Israelites through sacrifice. God's character was on display in both plagues and Passover. And then the people of God are, are delivered into freedom and they, they begin to walk into the promised land and the story continues in the conquest of the promised land and the establishment of the kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom, the warnings of the prophets. And once again, we see God's power on incredible display. The, the power of God caused the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down. The power of God sent the enemies of God scattering, even though their numbers were higher and their weapons were stronger. The power of God established kings and kingdoms. The power of God rained down fire on a soaking wet altar to thwart the prophets of Baal and send them running. The power of God caused axes to float and giants to fall and dead children to come back to life and oil and flour to multiply. God's power was on display in conquest. But the way he chose to relate to his people was a little different. He said, I'm going to relate to you by covenant. I want to give you this covenant. It's the pathway in which you and I will relate to one another. And central to that covenant was the requirement that once a year the people of God would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple. And the priest, the high priest, would go into the most holy place and once again sacrifice a lamb to cover the sins of the people. It was through sacrifice that God gave his people a pathway of saying, This is how we're going to relate to one another. It was through sacrifice that God gave his people a promise that one day there is one who is coming that will be the final, ultimate, eternal sacrifice for you. God's character is on display in both conquest and covenant. His power declared that he was the one who is just and he is the one who is holy and he is the one who has all authority. 
But his sacrifice and covenant reveal that he was the God who desires to come near. The God of mercy. The God who desires intimacy. And then we turn the pages to the New Testament and we see Jesus come on the scene. God, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. Clothed in the skin of a human baby. And this God-man puts his power on full display. He calms storms. He multiplies food. He walks on water. He calls dead men to come up and walk out of their graves. He opens the eyes of the blind and opens the ears of the deaf. He puts the power of God on full display. And yet, when he hears his disciples arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, he tells them, if you want to be first, you have to be last. Because whoever wants to be greatest must make themselves the servant of all, just as I have come to be a ransom for many. And so we see Jesus putting the power of God on full display, but also stepping low to scoop up mud, to spread on the eyes of a blind man, to bring him sight. Stepping low to pick up children and put them on his lap. To reverse the shame of a sexually promiscuous woman and restore her to a place of significance. To love the unlovable. To touch the untouchable. And we see the full culmination of his powerful nature and his sacrificial nature as he begins to move to the cross. As he steps low to subject himself into the hands of a friend who would betray him. To those he desperately loves who would torture him. And ultimately to death on a cross. And yet, ironically, Jesus' greatest power was revealed at the moment of greatest sacrifice. Because it was in that place of sacrifice on the cross that his power overcame sin, that his power overcame death, that his power turned over the powers of hell. Redemption was found in ransom, and God's greatest power was released at the point of his greatest sacrifice. See, in the creation, God revealed his power and then he sacrificed to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And that pointed to a time when his blood would cover humanity for all time. In the plagues, he showed his power to declare that he was the one true God. And in sacrifice, he created a Passover for his people. And it pointed to the time when Jesus would become the ultimate Passover lamb. He showed his power in conquest, but in covenant. He pointed to a time when Jesus would establish a new covenant, a new way for us to relate to God. Jesus wasn't the first time that we saw God's power and sacrifice on display together. But he was the perfect personification of it. Now if we go back to Philippians for a moment. Going back to what Paul said, he said we should have the same mindset as Christ. He said that we have to have the same approach that he had. That we had to walk in humility. 
says that he, he humbled himself and took on human form. And he humbled himself even more to be a servant and ultimately obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're to walk in humility just like Jesus did. Now, let me give you my favorite definition for humility. It comes from C.S. Lewis. And he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Rather, it's thinking of yourself less. See, there's an important difference. Because I think a lot of times, our approach to humility is to negate compliments instead of graciously receive them. To, to downplay our strengths instead of offering them in the service of others or to focus on our weaknesses instead of acknowledging that we have strengths. I think that those are all expressions of false humility. It's, it's, it's thinking less of ourselves. But true humility is simply thinking of ourselves less. See, we're, we're so consumed in, in what we think about ourselves and what others think about us, but the reality is it really doesn't matter what other people think about us. But it does matter what people think about Jesus because of us. And so I just want to, for a few minutes to, to make this very practical. How do we walk in humility? I think the first thing we have to do is defer our preferences Defer our preferences. Now, if there are any parents in the room, you practice this all the time. If you think about it, you have the authority, you have the control, you have the capability to make the decisions, you have the car keys, you have the driver's license, you own the car, you have the ability to go wherever you want to go. So why would you ever find yourself at a Taco Bell? Because you defer your preferences for the little people in the back seat. What would it look like for you to defer your preferences this week? I believe that deferring preferences is something that kills entitlement in my life. What are some practical ways you can just defer your preferences this week? Because that's an expression of walking in humility. I think a, a second way that we can walk in humility is by winning at assists. Win at assists. Now, let me explain this, put a little bit of skin on it for you. Uh, I'm traveling this weekend with Emily Hendrickson. She's our weekend services director at National Community Church. And... Um, before she was on staff at a church, she was uh, an elite athlete. She, in high school, she uh, played basketball. She was on her way to a collegiate scholarship, uh, probably to the WNBA. And one thing I knew about Emily is that she was the number two point guard in her class nationally. She was number two, ranked number two in scoring. And so we were out shooting one day, and she was telling me that my shot was ugly and trying to help me out. I'm actually terrible at basketball. And, um, but the trash talk started, right? And so I asked her, I was like, Emily, what's wrong with you? Why were you not number one in scoring? And she shot back very quickly because I was number one in assists. No, I was actually so impressed by that, I couldn't even come up with a comeback. Could Emily have been number one in scoring? I don't know, maybe. But the reality is that she was willing to pass the ball 
to set someone up, someone else up, to make someone else look good. She won at assists. What would it look like for us to win in assists? How can we leverage our strength to help somebody else win? I mean, in our, in our relationships, is there a place where we need to sacrifice a personal win or a personal goal or a personal desire in order to set somebody else up well? How can we set up someone else for the win? How can we help someone else achieve one of their goals? How can we give away the credit? See, I think a lot of times we, we get concerned about who gets the credit, but just imagine how much we could accomplish if nobody cared who got the credit. And, and imagine how much more we could accomplish if our only concern was that Jesus got the credit. I think any leader that is worth their salt spends a part of their life, a season of their life, making someone else's dream become a reality. As you're climbing whatever ladder you're on, are you pushing down the people that are in your way or are you helping them rise to their highest level as well? Win in assists. How are you stewarding your resources and your time and your energy to help someone else win. So defer your preferences. Win and assist. And then finally, walking in humility means that we seek to elevate the highest good of others. To elevate the highest good of others. Andy Stanley is, is one of my favorite authors and communicators and pastors and he asked a question one time that, that I've thought about a lot. He said, he said, what do you do when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? What do you do at the moment that it occurs to you that you are the most powerful person at the kitchen table, in the boardroom, at the committee table, in the community gathering? What do you do when the... When, when the decision is on the table and all eyes are on you. And Andy Stanley would say, Jesus has already given us the example of what to do. And we find this example in, in John 13. It's, it's his last, um, last night of his earthly human life before going to the cross. And he's just finished a meal or he's, he's in the middle of a meal with his disciples. And in verse 2 we read this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. There was a moment where it dawned on Jesus, he's the most powerful person in the room. That he knew the Father had put all things under his power. He knew he had come from God and was returning God to God. He knew what his rights and privileges and responsibilities were, and he knew what his true identity was. And when it dawned on him he was the most powerful person in the room, he leveraged that power to serve others. 
elevate the highest good of others. Who are we serving? Who are we blessing? Walking in humility means that we intentionally step to a lower place in order to raise someone else up and to serve someone else. One of the final pictures we see of what Jesus is like we find in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 5, verse 5, we read this, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, his triumph. And immediately after that, in verse 6, we read, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. At the very end of the story, at the very end of all things, Jesus appears. And he appears as a lion. The picture of power. The one who has triumphed and simultaneously appears as a lamb. The one who sacrifices. The one who is slain. It's because of his power that made him the perfect sacrifice. And it was his sacrifice that unleashed his power perfectly. At the end of all things, the lion and the lamb, the one who is powerful and sacrificial, will restore creation. At the end of all things, he is the ultimate Passover, giving us opportunity to be covered. He, he is the one who has established a pathway for us to have relationship with God. His power and his sacrifice work in harmony for our good and for his glory. Now, because Adam and Eve had that moment at the very beginning where they chose not to trust God, we've been plagued by that ever since. We have also chosen to not trust God, and that has severed relationship with him. And because of that, we have this debt that we are powerless to pay. We're powerless to restore that relationship. But Jesus, who owed nothing came to our place to take our place in order to take us back to his place. And he paid a debt that he did not owe. Now, some of us are here this weekend, and we just need to remember that. We've been following Jesus. We've been in relationship with Jesus. But maybe we've lost a sense of gratitude for the way that his sacrifice has worked in our lives. And today I just I want to encourage you to, to remember that sacrifice, to be grateful for it. Some of you are, are here today and, and you need to remember that God's power has the ability to break addictions and heal wounds and restore relationship in your life. And you need to remember that, that his sacrifice gives meaning to your life. I want to invite you to come out for care night. We've got a, a slide. It'll show you how to connect to that. It's a way for you to address hurts and habits and hang-ups in your life, or more importantly, for the power of God to address the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups in your life, to restore you relationally. Maybe you're here this weekend and you just need to make a decision about what you're going to do with this both and God. You know that he is calling you into relationship with him, and, and you just need to make a decision to do that. Or maybe you're here this weekend and you just still have lots of questions. 
You don't know how to reconcile what you know about God and what you see in the world around you. You don't know how to reconcile some of the things we're talking about. Is he's both jealous and love and wrath and grace. And, and if that's you, I, I'm just so glad that you're here. And, and I want to invite you to consider coming to Alpha. Again, we've got some information about that. It's a, it's a safe place for you to wrestle with the claims of Jesus. It's a safe place for you to wrestle with what you think about this thing of Christianity and following Jesus. Bring your questions to the table. No question is too simple or too silly or too, um, too, too extravagant or too difficult. We need the both and God to become the people we're created to be to navigate the world that we've been dropped into. His power and his sacrifice work in perfect harmony together for his glory and our good. God, I, I thank you today that you, you're not just a bigger, better version of us, that you are completely other. God, I thank you that you are the God of surprising combinations. It's, it's so cool to think about the fact that no matter how long we know you and how much we try to get to know you, there's still so much of you left to get to know. God, I pray today for people that are here that need your power on full display in their lives. That you would break addictions, that you would bring freedom, that you would restore relationships. God, there are those today that, that need to see the power of your sacrifice. That you came to reverse their shame, to cover sin, to pay debts that we will never be able to repay. And God, I pray that we would reflect your character, that we would walk in humility. Not thinking less of ourselves, but just thinking of others more. Help us practically this week to defer our preferences, to, to win and assist, to elevate others. God, may we reflect you in the world around us so that others may know you and experience your power and sacrifice for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.